So we've never arrived at a show the way we have arrived at this show. In all of our nine years, which is like about 2,000 shows, maybe not quite 2,000 shows, uh, as we've dreamed up shows, we've never dreamed them up quite the way that we've dreamed up this one. And so let me quickly explain. I, I don't know whether this is of interest, but you just have to listen to it anyway. So what we did this time was we decided that we had detected a kind of uh, a phenomenon in, in writing thinking, a phenomenon that was peculiar to this moment in time um, that we thought we could uh, almost link together into some kind of subgenre. So we did. Uh, we decided that there were people who were writing about this moment in time, this moment in time stretching, say, from 2015 to the present as a time in which reality seemed uh, dangerous and unstable, uh, whether we're talking about climate change or, change or Brexit or the Trump era, uh, this notion that a single tweet to Korea uh, could result in Armageddon, uh, but also a time in which concentration was increasingly splintered by multiple forms of digital communication. The mind is increasingly less rewarded uh, for any kind of sustained thinking. One thought drives out another. A thought uh, about politics might be driven out by a personal reflection, which might be driven out by something uh, very casual and quotidian. Uh, but we also felt that this group of people that we were absolutely convinced existed also managed ultimately to travel the path of all of that towards a more positive message, that there's something about creation and love that, that ultimately, if they don't deliver us from our sorrows, they at least give us something to cling to in the storm-tossed seas. And then finally, we invented a name for them. <laughs> we decided to call them apocaloptimists. Uh, that is a portmanteau of apocalypse and optimist. Uh, and then we figured out who they were. We already knew Olivia Lang, who's our first guest, was going to be one of them. Uh, a little bit later in the show, you'll meet uh, two uh, poets uh, and writers, and uh, you'll reacquaint yourself with Lucy Gelman. We found a lot of writers and thinkers who kind of are coming at things the same way. But we're going to begin uh, with uh, Olivia Lang, author most recently of the novel Crudo. Uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation, uh, newly minted Apocaloptimist Olivia Lang. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I've never been described as optimistic before. <laughs> well, and, and this book. The, but I for, see it. Yes. I see what you're saying. Yes. I mean, this novel, uh, your protagonist, Kathy, is for the most part not terribly optimistic for, for most, of, most of the book. And we could talk a little bit about this. I mean, it seems to me that there are uh, a group of elements that, you know, that characterize the way that you've written this novel. This novel really does have one foot in prose and one foot in poetry. Uh, there's, and there is that sense, right, that one thought is driving at another, and those thoughts don't really have any consistent clothesline on which you can hang them. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, this, the state of mind that you're trying to recreate in prose here. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's very much trying to bear witness to a moment at which grotesque um, political events are happening 
in the simultaneity of our domestic lives and how strange that is and how amplified that's become by social media. So you might log on to Twitter in the morning expecting to see something about what your friends have been up to the night before or even what they've been eating for breakfast. And instead you're confronted with images of hyperviolence or of the president threatening nuclear war and trying to... Um, live, love, exist in that kind of moment has become increasingly challenging, I think. And so Crudo was really an attempt to try and get down in real time, I wrote it in real time, what it felt like to, to exist through such a time of, of turbulence and fractured consciousness. So we should say you wrote it in real time in, I believe, the summer of 2017, right? Yeah, over seven weeks. And so where the novel starts is the day I started writing and where it ends is the day that I stopped because I really wanted to try and capture a moment that I really knew would be written about in history books later and would by then have acquired a shape and coherence that was absolutely absent for my experience. And I think most people's experience at the time, the experience was chaotic. Right. We can talk a little bit about what was in that experience. But to tell you the truth, uh, we could have probably picked another seven-week period uh, sometime in, in the last two and a half years and, and found almost as many, you know, just as long a chain of alarming things. I want to just um, stop on one thing that you said before, because there's one difference I want to highlight a little bit. You talked about how, well, you sort of log on to find, what you're, find out what your friends are doing. But the reality of this is, at this moment, you know, I, I was in a hotel room in Austin, Texas, about uh, three or four weeks ago writing a newspaper column. And I just into the column, I, I, I slipped the throwaway line, uh, push notifications are changing human consciousness. But that's another story. And the truth is, you don't log on anymore, right? You, what, your character is walking down the street when the Comey news uh, mm. arrives. I'm guessing your character didn't have to go looking for it. I'm guessing your character's... It explodes out of our pockets right. all the time. <laughs> your, phone made a, your character's phone made a little noise, and there it was. We don't even go looking for this stuff anymore. It comes looking for us. Yeah, and we're perpetually invaded by it, this very strange sense of constantly being able to know what's happening, not just in the world, but in the consciousness of millions and millions of people. That's not something that's ever been available to an artist before, this sense of knowing exactly what different people are thinking in different countries, in different cultures at any one minute is both extraordinary and completely overwhelming. And yet we try to live our lives. So um, your character, um, Kathy, um, is experiencing a wedding day when Steve Bannon was fired and Confederate statues are being pulled down uh, in the night. Uh, and, and there is this sort of tension, right? Do I live in this moment? Well, what does this moment consist of? Does it consist only of my life or does it consist of all these faraway event events that I'm intimately linked to? Yeah, and I think it's absolutely both. Well, the conclusion that Kathy comes to in the novel is very much pain is the nature of the world, but also love is the nature of the world. And having some sort of accommodation between the two things, not allowing yourself to become numb to and screened off to the violence that's affecting other people, but at the same time, not allowing it to deaden you so much that you stop experiencing joy in the world as a human animal. So try, trying to find a balance between those two things, between the personal and the political, seems to me really crucial, which I guess is where I can see the truth in your apocalyptic title. Right. And we can sort of circle back around to that, too. But yeah, and just to just to know that you have kindred spirits, uh, one, of, uh, one of the guests in the second segment has a poem in which uh, the, the line appears, 
years, the mind ricochets like a fly. Uh, and, oh, wow. And, and one of the other uh, second segment uh, guests uh, begins her essay uh, that, saying, saying that we are besieged by, quote, ominous tidings. Uh, well, ominous tidings are, are very much what's rumbling through uh, your novel, Crudo. Um, and I know that you are not Kathy. Uh, Kathy is not Olivia, all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. How about that wedding day thing? There, I understand that there might actually be some truth to that whole idea of being having a wedding day where everybody was checking their phones. <laughs> Well, I did actually interrupt my own wedding in order to go upstairs and write down the scene of Steve Bannon resigning because it was so it was such a good illustration of what it feels like to be to be alive right now. So, so we were having a party post our wedding and somebody looked at their phone and shouted Steve Bannon's resigned and everybody grabbed their phones and everybody was glued to them and it just seemed like you, you can't escape this sense of political knowledge but also the the anxiety and the the in fact, terror, I think, that follows of, well, what does this mean? What's going to happen next? What's, what are the implications of this? The sense of being in a moment where you feel that something drastic is changing, but you're not sure exactly which are the important elements or what you should be watching. And that feels very confusing and something that I really wanted to bear witness to. You know, there also is a kind of narcissism of the moment, right? This uh, sense that we are living in this tumultuous time, unlike any time anybody else ever went through. And, you know, if you were writing this novel uh, in real time right now, you'd have the Kavanaugh uh, hearings unfolding and, and all this stuff. But, I mean, one of, one of the other characters in the book, the husband, uh, talks about where they're staying. Uh, at this point, they're staying, uh, I think, in, in the Val d'Orsha in, uh, in Tuscany. And he says, this is where Americans bombed indiscriminately bombed uh, and killed uh, civilians and killed children's uh, children. I don't know if it's intentional, but there's a way in which that kind of calls our attention. Oh, to the no, fact that, that's, yeah. that's entirely intentional. I mean, this book basically is a reworking of Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood, which does the same thing for the 1940s in Berlin, that there's there's Christopher Isherwood with his avatar character, Christopher, turning up in Berlin. And at mm-hmm. first, he's having a very romantic time and enjoying learning a city as a young man and gradually starts to notice that there are swastikas appearing and that somebody's spelt out Heil Hitler in pine cones on the beach. And by the end of the book, Jewish department stores are having their windows smashed and his friends are being taken prisoner. And it really captures, in a way that I was very interested to try and do again with Crudo, what it feels like to be living directly through those times rather than looking back at them with the long view of history and not really knowing, maybe this is going to come to nothing. Oh, this doesn't seem to be coming to nothing. This seems to be accelerating quite quickly. So I I don't agree about the, the sort of narcissism of the present day. I think that this is life. This is what human existence is like. It goes through these phases of heated up political change and it's just very interesting as well as disturbing to try and watch how that happens. So there's a a way in which in this book which really has a unique prose style. There's, I think, also kind of a question about how we hold on to our identities in a situation like mm. this. We're bombarded with so much information which might ultimately shape uh, our notion of who we are or what the present moment is. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that notion of stable identity. Yeah, I mean, the, the character Cassie draws heavily on the experimental writer Cassie Acker, who herself was a deliberate plagiarist, a deliberate thief. She'd steal all kinds of different identities. She'd steal... Dickens, she'd steal Don Quixote. And so I stole Cassie Acker. And the reason I did that was because we seem to be in a moment of such unstable identity. 
particularly with social media where we can go on and perform all sorts of different selves all the time, it seemed like an interesting sort of game to play, to have this character that definitely has elements of me and my life, but also has elements of somebody that died in the 90s and yet I've sort of resurrected and put into, the, into 2017 um, and thrust into this kind of Trumpian universe to really see what happens. Right. And I mean, once again, not to repeat that notion of the narcissism of the present moment, but, you know, as much as this all feels new and different, I mean, there have been other ways in which I know I, I wound up I was reading your book and I was thinking of Blaise Pascal, whose pensées, you know, are all sort of mm. jottings and fragments. And I think he meant to organize them a little bit better before he died or something. <laughs> but but he's ultimately, you know, maybe one of the earlier tweeters, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, so maybe we don't do things. Uh, we're, maybe we're not the first people to to do all these things. Either that, or Blaise Pascal was ahead of his time, which probably we could argue. Uh, I mean, we could argue forcefully on, on behalf of that. So, I mean, I think there's the human tendency, and then I think there's the technology. So, the human yes. tendency to be um, constantly discussing and relaying information, of course, that's that's primal. That's key to us as a species. But the technology and the availability of the information of what everyone else is thinking is something that's new. So. I don't think human nature changes that drastically, but I do think that the kind of devices we invent, we have a slightly different experience of reality. Um, we're talking to Olivia Lang right now. Uh, her new novel is Crudo. Uh, we should say that our what we've been longing to do for a really long time is to do a show about loneliness, which would have Olivia Lang on it. And we haven't quite given up on that idea. Mm. Um, but this is books of departure for you. Uh, you've gone from nonfiction to fiction. Uh, when we saw this book, we thought, well, wait a minute, maybe we should do a book about this. And that's how we have invented mm. Apocaloptimus. But, um, but maybe you could talk about why a person who I think you were setting out to write another nonfiction book at some point anyway, and and something else happened. What was that something else? Well, to be honest, the election of Trump and Brexit. I mean, I was trying to write a nonfiction book about bodies, about the experience of having a human body in the world. And it was about violence. It was about sexuality. And I was finding it very hard to write. And I realized it was because the political moment that we were in suddenly seemed to be shifting very rapidly and I couldn't get the kind of purchase I needed to write the sort of nonfiction that I typically write, which is very much objective, at a distance, has a sort of sense of being able to grasp a situation or a moment, and I couldn't. And so in the end, I decided to just write what it felt like to be inside this moment, almost like an exorcism of the, the feelings. It was quite cathartic in terms of my own sort of terrors of oncoming nuclear war or a fascist era. And that that was the driver for Crudo, really, was, well, let's just get down what this moment feels like from the inside. So, okay, now we come to the kind of the second half of this word. Let's talk a little bit more about it. You know, I don't know. I find myself thinking, I know he's uh, a little bit more radioactive these days than he used to be, but, I, you know, I think it's at the end of Annie Hall, uh, Woody Allen tells the, that joke, or maybe the beginning of Annie Hall. Uh, he tells the joke about uh, the man whose wife thinks she's a chicken, and his friend says, well, you've got to do something about this. You've got to cure her or put her in an institution. And he says, I can't. I need the eggs. Um, <laughs> and And there's... You know, there's a little bit of that, I think, maybe at the end of your book, that things are things things are not what they should be. But somehow or other, we have enough of we need enough so that I don't know. You say it better than you're the you're the novelist. What is it you are saying at the end? of the Well, book? I think um, 
I really think this is a book about selfishness. It's a book about one very selfish person, potentially drawn from <laughs> my own selfishness, um, who is trying to learn how to love. It's In some ways, it's really a sequel to The Lonely City. Somebody who's trying to learn how to soften their own boundaries and really take in the existence of another person and care for another person. And that is a personal story, a love story within the book. But it's also a political story that we're in a moment of grave selfishness. We're in a moment of closing borders. We're in a moment of walls between nations, people being expelled. And that the, the selfishness is the same kind of selfishness, whatever level it's been seen on. And I think this is really about somebody trying to make a decision in their own life to be slightly less selfish and to be slightly more generous on all levels, loving on all levels. Um, in some ways, though, and we have a poet coming on later, I think, who will probably explore this question. That dichotomy between loving and selfishness, you know, maybe it's one that we artificially make for ourselves. I mean, ultimately, there's something very selfish about loving. And there's something, uh, ultimately, when you make a decision to, to treat someone or to treat other people in the world uh, as, uh, as your beloved I, I don't know. Is that a complete? Is that a completely non-selfish thing? It's, it's it can be so gratifying. It, that's an interesting question because I think in in the Lonely City, I was so opposed to the idea of people coupling off and turning away from the world. But I think there are many different kinds of love, and I think just the act of of loving, of really learning how to take in the reality of another person, is enlarging, and it can be continued out to other people it doesn't have to close in with right this is my person I, I don't even think I don't even really accept that as a definition of love I think that is a kind of selfishness or a kind of narcissism and I think there's a love that is enlarging so there you are I am an optimist you've outed me yeah and also we need the eggs uh, <laughs> we need the eggs <laughs> all right Olivia Lang it's been so great to talk to you uh come back for the lo loneliness show although let me just quickly say apropos of the the loneliness show to be yeah as you know Britain now has a Minister of Loneliness. This is extraordinarily hard to get in touch with the Minister of Loneliness. We've had this problem. There's a documentary film being made right now called The Minister of Loneliness. They can't get an interview with a Minister of Loneliness. Uh, what, do, what would we make of that? I think the Minister of Loneliness should soften their borders and open their doors. Maybe the Minister of Loneliness thinks, look, I can't be hanging around with people. I'm the Minister <laughs> of Loneliness. All right. Well, we'll find out. Olivia Lang, so much, uh, thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you for having me. Bye-bye. All right. So now we're going to get ready for another segment. We're going to go to another place. You're going to meet – well, we're not, we're not actually going to go to another place, but you're, you're going to meet You're going to meet some other apocaloptimists who didn't know they were apocaloptimists until, like, yesterday when we made up the word. Keep your head up. Keep your heart strong. No, 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 no. Keep your mindset. Keep your head up. Oh, my, my darling. Keep your head up. Keep your heart strong. All right. Welcome back to our show. Uh, let me restate the premise of this episode, which uh, was arrived at in a miraculous and probably unrepeatable way, which we started to talk, I think we really started, first of all, to talk about the novel uh, Crudo, which you just heard about, and we started talking about some of the ideas in it. By we, I mean Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, and me, but then um, Jonathan McPants and I think one of our interns joined the conversation too, and we, we started to isolate some ideas 
that we thought might be permeating society and the zeitgeist and stuff like that. Uh, and those ideas included the uh, inability to pay attention for sustained periods of time and also this sense of doom, this sense of, as one of our uh, next guests uh, says, ominous tidings. Uh, and then beyond that, this sense that still, ultimately, w we can't just stop uh, with ominous tidings. We have to kind of mine experience for something else. We have to find some way of, of finding each other, uh, of perfecting the obstinate and beautiful mystery that every soul ends up being to each other, uh, as one of our other guests uh, says. So let me introduce those mysterious guests so you'll know who they are. Uh, the, the, the latter person, whose work I just sort of paraphrased, uh, is uh, Aaron Ballou, professor of creative writing and poetry at Florida State University. She is the author of four collections of poetry, uh, Infanta, One Above the One Above and One Below, Black Box, and Slant Six, the last of which the poem I just quoted from appears in. And Rachel Haddas, a professor of English at Rutgers University and the author of many books of poetry, prose, and translations, and a memoir, Strange Relation, a memoir of marriage, dementia, and poetry. So um, uh, I don't even know where to be. <laughs> begin. But they, they are apocaloptimists. Uh, this is a word that we made up and which they seem willing to wear, uh, at least for the purposes of today. Um, Aaron Ballou, I think I'm, I'm going to begin with you. Um, we, I stumbled onto one of your poems just looking around, looking for stuff to read that might kind of feed into this idea. Uh, it was the poem that I just quoted from. But maybe you could just say a little bit about what you think is fueling your creativity these days. I mean, I described this kind of combina combination uh, of, uh, of both darkness and lightness. I don't know. How do you react to that? Well, I, I, I think like a lot of artists, um, unfortunately, bad times for everyone are often really fruitful times for artists because we sure have a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like we're in this moment where art, you know, you know Shelley talks about how poets are the unacknowledged legislators. Um, and I think about that a lot in terms of of feeling like that we're in a moment where art is one of those things. I don't want to say that I think art is going to save us, but I think art opens up the possibilities for um, thinking and feeling that can sometimes bring us to our better selves. Um, you know, I, I want to just also begin with that notion, and I'm going to talk to both of you about this, but let me just stay with you for a second, Aaron. Uh, you know, I was talking before to Olivia Lang about that, uh, that notion of fractured consciousness. Uh, in one of your poems, you say the mind ricochets like a fly. Um, tell us what you mean by that. I think that I have the same sense that a lot of people do that there's so, and especially because of the the way we live now with Twitter and, you know, Facebook, and, and we have this kind of, the, the horror has a kind of increasing immediacy. Um, and so there are ways in which you are looking at pictures of kitty cats or somebody's adorable two-year-old, and then you encounter the most terrible thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, children being imprisoned at the border and, you know, just things that we just think are so, that are sort of beyond comprehension and the fact that it's in this kind of scroll form where the brain is just going from thing to thing to thing to thing um i i, I it's so physically emotionally mentally it's just so hard to stay in one place um in any of those ways i think 
Um, Rachel had us, uh, let's work you into this conversation uh, as we were reading around looking for pe- people wondering if there were any other people thinking about the same things that we were thinking about. We found an essay you wrote in the conversation, uh, and it began with the notion of ominous tidings, this sense that we live kind of in this constant spattering downpour of, of ominous tidings. Maybe you can say a little bit about how that feels or seems to you. Well, I mean, Erin is exactly right. Hi, Erin. I'm a fan. Hi, um, as and, the, the and, admiration and you edited about motherhood some years ago, and, and uh, it, the technology only makes it worse. But I think that two of the things I talk about in the essay, which are stoicism and poetry, can both help us to focus and slow down and take in just how bad it is, because poets are truth-tellers. Erin is absolutely right that bad times in history can be very good times for poets, I myself was a resolutely non-political poet until about 2015. I had a poem called The Poultice, which is both a love poem and a poem about refugees. And uh, it was in The New Yorker in 2015. And anyway, one doesn't look back. There is a wonderful new anthology called Resistance Rebellion Life, 50 Poems Now, edited by Ahmed Majmudar, who is a physician as well as a poet, and he said that 9-11 sort of woke him up. We all had our wake-up moment, and I think most of us have had by now. And certainly the technology just speeds up the ricochet. Yeah, I could say much more, but I'll pause for a moment. Well, I want to just uh, uh, come back to one thing that you were saying before, Rachel, because I think this thing works both both ways, as Aaron has suggested, too. You know, we are driven from the profound to the trivial, but also from the trivial to the profound in this yeah. deluge of information. So the other day on Sunday, I was sitting there feeling unbelievably aggrieved uh, at an almost level of cosmic injustice about a call that had gone against my Green Bay Packers uh, in their game against the Minnesota Vikings. And I was really thinking, is there just any way to salvage myself on this particular day? And I pick up the New York Times and my eye, the first thing that hits my eye is this story about people in Rwanda who are slowly dying from untreated strep, which of course, as we know, is a completely treatable disease. And Rachel, at that level, I I thought, oh, (laughs) I guess it doesn't really matter whether that was roughing the passer or not, right? Well, that's actually the technique that Seneca recommends of negative visualization, which is very human. If we're in a minor accident or even not so minor, you know how often we say, I was lucky, it wasn't much worse. And it's very natural to think other people are in worse shape than we are, exactly the story you told, Colin. And um, that doesn't mean that we're just sort of whistling in the dark or whatever it is, but it does give one a sense of perspective. For sure. And I was just reading in a not very good medical newsletter I will no longer subscribe to. They said, a good idea for depression is to separate those things you can do something about and some of those things you can't. That is another stoic technique of what um, we call the dichotomy or the trichotomy of control. So can you do something, however small, to help those people in Rwanda and help those refugees? And I think the answer is always yes, you can do something. Um, Aaron, I feel like there's some of this in your work, too. Uh, I'm thinking in particular uh, of pity the doctor, not the disease. Uh, but uh, And if you want to talk about that poem, that's great. If there's another poem you want to talk about it. But it, it feels as though one of the things we have to do is make some choices from within this deluge about what we can control, what we can't, what we're willing to live with and maybe even enjoy as opposed to what we fear. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. I think 
for me personally, I, I feel the need every day to do something. That's the way that I am, whether it's calling my senators or, you know, I organized this huge event last year called Writers Resist where we had um, writers really around the world coming together to try to re-inaugurate the spirit of actual democracy in the country. That's what makes, that's what works for me. Um, I just know that I'm going to sort of uh, fall into despair if I don't try and I'm not, you know, I don't manage it every day, but I wake up with the intention to do something because what what else is there to do? I mean, I'm not the kind of person who's just going to, um, you know, capitulate. Um, and, and I don't mean to sound unkind in that way. I feel like sometimes people are so overwhelmed these days that I get that we're not always our best selves. How could we be? But for me, it feels important to do something to make art, to to organize, to be an activist. Like, I, if I don't do that, I feel like I'm going to very much fall into the kind of malaise that that poem, Pity the Doctor, talks about. Well, and Aaron, I'm going to stay with you for a second on this and just tell a very quick story. So earlier this year, I had to give a speech uh, at sort of a medical conference in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is just a couple hours north of Dallas. I've never even heard of the town. I went up there and spoke in this kind of very modern medical complex that's up by this kind of cloverleaf of the highways. And then they, they, I said, what is there to do now? Uh, and they said, well, there's this arts walk in, in downtown. Uh, and, you know, we're not going, but maybe you'd like to go over there. So I drove <laughs> To, I drove to their downtown, which is not where all the development and action is. That's all big box stuff up by this cloverleaf. And then they had this beautiful old downtown that nobody with any money clearly gave a, a, a crap about. But these artists had just moved in and they had gallery spaces and music spaces and kind of weird, interesting antique spaces. And they were doing this art walk and there were, you know, taco trucks out on the street and it was late at night. And I, I, it, it reminded Reminded me, Aaron, or, or your poem, I should say, uh, someone asks what makes this poem American, reminded me of that moment. I just felt so good knowing in this little, you know, or mid-sized uh, town or city in Texas that people were just doing this stuff, you know, I mean, whether it made any sense or not. Yeah, the I think news um, is always very bad and very good at the same time, I think. I mean, I know that that's the ricochet online, but it's just the human condition. There's a lot of good and a lot of bad, and poets tend to zero in. I'm sorry, Erin, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. Well, that was that was sort of my, my little thought there. That's a lovely story. I mean, I think of sort of art among the ruins and the fact that there's always hope and there are always people doing things. And I think we're called upon more now if we wake up with that good intention Erin spoke of. I mean, I was asked a month ago to read at a benefit next week, the all-star women poets read to benefit Democratic Party. So this is a little reading in the Cornelia Street Cafe in New York on September 29th. And there's an organization called 1,000 Poets for Change. So whatever we raise will go toward Democratic candidates and particularly women. And how nice to be invited to participate in that. 
That's but, just a small example. And and I and Aaron, back to you for a second. I like that sense also. I don't know. You know, I I we're told that uh, when Neruda would read, you know, the farmers would put down their plows and go into the center of the village and listen to him. There's a way in which we feel as though the life of the arts could be segregated out into the two coasts. Uh, but in, in that particular poem and in that story that I just told, there's that kind of notion: art should be everywhere, right? I, I think so very much. I mean, I grew up in Nebraska, and um, I mean, I spent years living in Boston, but outside of that, you know, I've spent my life in smaller cities, and, you know, it's funny it's when, you, when you're at parties and people say, where are you from and where you grew up? And I said, Nebraska, and they're like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, kind of like, oh, huh, well, that's nice. Either they have no idea or they feel bad for me. But what, what I don't think people understand is that there are, there are artistic communities everywhere, and I think the, the body politic gets healthier when there are artists everywhere. Um, and so I feel like we, I, I think people are starting to understand. It's a, it, one of the things that we see is that in moments of extremity, poetry comes sort of roaring back into people's lives in a way that it hasn't been... It isn't always true, and everything's feeling a lot more comfy, I suppose. That's how I know we poets aren't totally useless, right? Because, you know, at the most the most significant moments in people's lives, usually, you know, weddings and funerals and christenings, people want poetry, and people want poetry when they're hurting, too, um, and when they're angry. And so I sort of feel like it's brought... It's brought this attention back to the value of making art, and in our, in our case, poetry. But that art really does celebrate something that keeps us afloat and reminds us why we want to live in the world in the first place. So yeah, we're coming to the second part uh, of that message. Uh, so, uh, or, or the second part of our portmanteau word. So, Rachel, uh, another thing you write about in that essay in the conversation is joy. Um, uh, baseball players should go out and play baseball, and grandparents should take their children to the park. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I am a, the proud grandmother of an 18-month-old granddaughter, and her first words are mine and no, which is very interesting. <laughs> when she wants to say yes, she nods, but she says no. And, you know, it's not going to do an 18-month-old any good if you say, well, I'm too depressed by the world situation. We're not going to go to the park. We'll just sit here and wring our hands. That That is not the way you can behave. You can't live that way. And... um so children will nudge you and push you into joy, and then doing something with a child will create more joy. And we don't really have any choice. I mean, I think that we're sort of hardwired that way. And once you are doing something, you will start to feel somewhat better, it seems to me. Um, and you don't have to feel guilty. I think the downside of our relatively comfortable lives in this country, not psychologically comfortable, but very fortunate for many of us in other ways is people feel terribly guilty. They think, what can I do? I feel guilty. I don't think you should feel guilty for living your life. And I think that, for example, a wonderful poet like Alicia Stallings, who has two children and works with refugees, looks straight on at the difficulty and then goes on and enjoys her life. I think that would, that's maybe what we could try to aim for. And doing something makes us feel less helpless. If we don't have children or grandchildren, that's fine. There's a lot of other things we can do. I love teaching. Even now, as I approach retirement, I really love teaching. But um, we shouldn't feel guilty about living our lives. 
we've we've seen difficulties before and i wanted to add a historical dimension colin took us out of the east the two coasts in this wonderful story about texas and we we also don't have to be restricted to 2018 Auden wrote a poem called Refugee Blues in the late 1930s about displaced Jewish people in Europe. Uh, Robert Frost apparently said, don't get hysterical, get historical, mm. which I think should be on a T-shirt, right? <laughs> it's, it's not just this moment. It's always been difficult. This is a very difficult moment. But there have been a lot of difficult moments. Right. Actually, the Auden reference makes me think, Aaron, uh, what you were saying before about weddings and funerals. Because at the end of, or at the funeral, on, in the movie Four Weddings and the Funeral, there's that fabulous Auden poem. And then they, they, everybody in the movie theater, people who think they don't like poetry, they were all going, what is that? What was that thing that guy did? What was that? And then they printed it up as just as a single tiny little volume. They'd sell it next to the cash register at bookstores because it turns out people actually wanted a poem. Um, Aaron, I just want to, as we get near the end of this, and particularly because we're going to be having another conversation in the next segment with a, a young woman who's, among other things, thinking about the whole notion uh, of children and the next generation. Aaron, I, my son's 28, and a lot of times when he's talking about the state of the world and global warming, and I, I just feel so bad, and I feel like I'm handing him the keys to this car that doesn't really work right, that could blow up or just drive him off the road. <laughs> and, and Aaron, you write a lot in your poetry, I, I think, about about being a mother and having children. And I don't know. I mean, what's your sense of uh, what are you trying to convey maybe to the generation that follows yours about all these problems? Well, I mean, you know, my my son Jude is 17. Um, and it's been, and, and the span of the last book, Slant Six, which is a book that really, you know, deals very much, was written a lot over the time of uh, Jude's young childhood. And he makes many appearances in there. Um, is this idea of raising our children in in this world and and I guess one of the things that I'm interested in in the the poems is watching him come into consciousness um, as a political human being and as a feeling human being and and the sort of work of art of watching him grow and for me there has been some solace I mean it, there's also just like I, I just said to Jude yesterday actually I was like I really hope you understand that it hasn't always been exactly like this, right? I mean, this is, you know, we've, we've had some pretty bad patches, but this is not normal. I don't want you to think this is the, is the normal. And he's like, yeah, yeah, mom, I know. But I suppose one of the things that's also been um, really meaningful to me is to watch Jude become, in his own ways, become uh, a political human being. Um, and he thinks he wants to possibly, maybe, be a political historian at this point, right? And the way we engage over that and the way we connect over that and the way he's been at protests over school shootings and LGBTQ plus support rallies. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing when your child is old enough to have a political mind. Um, well, at least in my case, it's lucky because he agrees with me. But <laughs> I don't know what it's like. I don't, 
I don't know what it's like if your kid doesn't agree it, with you. It can be actually, it can be very interesting to have a kid who disagrees with you about really, really some of the very fundamental questions. Uh, sure. I have that experience myself sometimes. We're going to have to stop here. I just encourage everybody who's listening uh, read these two poets. Uh, we'll do a show page at uh, wnpr.org/colin, the Colin McEnroe Show page that will link to some of their work and tell you how to spell their names and how to find them. But you will uh, get much instruction uh, and much joy and some laughter um, out of their poems. So I'm um, talking, of course, about Erin Ballou, uh, professor of creative writing and poetry at Florida State University. Uh, her collections of poetry include Slant Six, from which we uh, have been uh, reading and citing, and Rachel Haddis, professor of English at Rutgers. Uh, her memoir, Strange Relation, a memoir of marriage, dementia, and poetry, is something that you can read, but also you can seek out her poems also. So we'll take a break. We'll come back with somebody maybe you know a little bit better, Lucy Gelman. But you're so tired And the dread it looms ahead Keep on rising up Well I keep on rising up Every day I'm rising up And now Shakespeare's Sonnet 18 Adapted for 2018 Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Trump did what? Where did you get that latte? Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines. Climate change! We're all gonna die. What was I talking about? LOL. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is not optimistic. She just saw part of Greenland float by. Our new intern is Panina Beatty. Don't go down to the second floor, Panina Beatty. That's where the DARPA rage virus experiments happen. The part of Bill Curry was played by Marcel Proust. On tomorrow's show, the poor and their hidden stories. And now, back to Colin. If Marcel Proust lived today, he wouldn't be able to remember anything. So we've been talking about this notion, uh, this um, word that we made up, uh, apocalyptimists. The idea being that, yes, it feels an awful lot like the end of the world an awful lot of the time. It feels as though uh, dread and anxiety would be very appropriate responses to most of the news that blows up on our cell phones every day. Uh, On the other hand, um, we have to live. We have to find things that keep us sane. So um, we've been talking to some people who confront those things uh, when we were talking among ourselves about who among the people that we actually know would be good to talk about this. Uh, right away, I thought of Lucy Gelman, uh, editor with New York, uh, New Haven Arts and host for WNHH in New Haven, uh, somebody who's been on the nose a lot with us uh, and other shows as well. Uh, but Lucy, you're also somebody who uh, you write about the arts, you think about the arts, and I think increasingly you're attracted to um, artistic experiences, artistic endeavors that somehow are, somehow or other address that tension, right, between dread yeah. and our need for joy. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, Colin. Hey. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yes, I, w- I would say increasingly I don't consider myself an optimistic person, um, and I do consider myself a chronically anxious person. But I'm also a person for whom work has always been a really important part of my life. And in writing about the arts, especially in this political moment, I find increasingly that I am grounded by um, not only doing those quick turnaround stories that I think there's incredible value in and that there's always so, you know, if a concert happens, if a play happens, if an exhibition happens, I'm going to be there because that's in the community. But really seeking out increasingly stories 
that are about people who identify as queer, LGBTQ, um, people of color, especially women of color, and centering my stories on those artists um, and, and really working with them to say, how do you want me to tell your story? What's important to you? And what have, what have I, um, as, as a white woman, you know, what have I gotten wrong in the past as well? Right. I think also it's interesting to talk about what art is for. And sometimes it's sure. it's hard to. But, you know, I'm just going to give you an example from, from your own coverage, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this. So um, the New Haven Green turned into a national story uh, uh, over the summer with these mass uh, overdoses uh, of K2. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what the uh, musical artistic response to it was. Yeah, well, actually, right now, there's an extremely exciting artistic response that's mobilizing as we speak. Um, so over the summer, there was a horrible, horrible rash of overdoses over about three days on the New Haven Green that did become a national story, uh, which is, I mean, it, it hurts one's heart to see New Haven become a national story for, for that and not for other reasons. But um, but. Kika Matos, who is a proprietor of the New Haven Green, one of the proprietors, has been working with the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Trees to get cultural um, engagement and arts arts activities onto the New Haven Green. And so actually tomorrow is the first installment, and there's going to be drumming. And it's, um, it's folks who have sort of diasporic Caribbean identities who are drumming and talking about the history of African drumming on the New Haven Green, which I think is really cool. Um, and, and then from that saying, okay, what else can we do on the New Haven Green? The International Festival of Arts and Ideas, of course, has a robust history of putting free concerts on the green. And I have to say, um, and Colin, I know you've been at the festival and hopefully you've seen some of these. It completely changes a public space when you put art into it, um, and especially when you put free art into a space and you invite folks in and say, hey, we can dance together, we can sing together, we can talk and, and meet and, um, you know, come together in, in a way that maybe other people in New Haven, which is unfortunately still a very segregated city, may not under other circumstances. Yeah, I actually have a memory from a couple of years ago, and I, I'm going to be maddeningly unspecific about this, but I was <laughs> I was out in the New Haven Green during that festival, and there was some kind of very highly uh, stylized and ritualized uh, Asian dancing that was being done in, oh. in a little tent out there. But what was interesting about it was at a certain point, and, and this was this, uh, I'm, it might, might have been Japanese, but I couldn't swear to that. But, uh, but in any case, at a certain point, they started just kind of halfway stepping off the stage and reaching their hands out and pulling people up onto the stage people who were not Asian, who were not familiar with what they were doing, and, and then recommencing, teaching them these, you know, once again, pretty ritualized steps. And I thought, wow, there really is something going on here. It's hard to put mm -hmm. a, word, a word to it, but there's a way in which you fill up emptiness anyway by, by inviting somebody into your space. I think that, and, and I, I really think that emptiness is physical and spiritual. Two years ago, Elisa Bones Mercado, who is a wonderful New Havener, gave a huge salsa lesson for free on the green. Mm -hmm. And probably like 500 people just came out and mobilized to dance salsa and tango and merengue on the green. And it was really, really cool. 
I mean, it, it was really fun. It sounds hokey, but it was super fun. It doesn't sound hokey at all. It sounds great. So we're running out of time, and I just want to ask you, instead of about artists, I want to ask you about Lucy Gelman. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, you know, we've talked to these poets and stuff like that who just sort of talk about, you know, how you keep living in a world that, that scares you or, or makes you incredibly sad. Um, you know, mm. you'll have choices in the years to come about whether to start a family, things like that. I don't know. How do you process all that these days? Well, I, um, I I mean, not to totally return to my work, but I'm extremely grounded by the work that I do. And I'm often around people who are, um, who celebrate moments and, and they have less than I do. And so thinking about power and privilege and reminding myself that I'm really lucky to get to live in this world, even though we're in a really messed up tumultuous time that, I mean, frankly, like scares me very much. Um, we have someone you know, who may become a Supreme Court justice who's going to take away all of my reproductive rights. And that does keep me up at night. Um, But then also when I think about how I want to make those major life decisions increasingly, and maybe even thanks to the current political moment, it's with great intentionality. And so I know, for instance, that um, I want to adopt children if I have children instead of having biological children. And partly that's because I've thought about the environmental consequences of, of having one's own children and also thought about, well, do I really need to be adding people to this world? Um, I also would say I apply to more things, um, be they grants or job opportunities or residencies, because I'm inspired kind of to just get my butt in gear by this moment. Um, and, and then I also do find time. I think it's really important for people, be they artists, writers, or, um, or, or just professionals in general, to find time for something that grounds you and makes you happy. And so I'm very lucky to have great love in my life. I'm very lucky to have a family with whom I'm very close in my life. And I increasingly um, remind myself not to take those things for granted. Uh, that's a beautiful place to end. Uh, life is uncertain. It's always been uncertain. Uncertain. The only thing we know that there is that there are days to come, and we hope that we'll be in them. Uh, Lucy Gelman, what a great way for us to end. You did well, it so thanks, beautifully. Colin. All right, so we're going to uh, thank everybody who helped out with today's show, but especially Betsy Kaplan, uh, because this show involved a certain risk. You know, we decided that there was a thing that didn't even really have a name. Uh, and we ultimately decided to call it uh, apocaloptimists, uh, people who are aware that the, this is a scary time, a time full of dread. But also a time, even in a time full of dread, you, f- you have to find some way uh, to keep going because you need the eggs. So thanks to Betsy Kaplan. She produced this episode. She found some wonderful guests for us to talk to. Uh, thanks to Kyle Wolf for, for being on the board. And yes, in the spirit of Lucy Gelman, thanks to everybody I work with because, uh, yeah, every day coming in here uh, is a good day.